The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Loving kindness is taught as a practice. Uh, we start with loving kindness for ourselves. Sometimes we utilize uh, a, a dear one or a benefactor to, to kind of um, seed the seed the loving kindness, kind of start to stimulate it. But uh, the, the kind of little center of the beginning of the practice is for self. But this form uh, and the form that's typically used to teach loving kindness wasn't taught by the Buddha. It was a later uh, addition to the tradition. And as valuable as it is, I think it's inter- interesting to go back and see what what the Buddha taught, and that's what we will ultimately do today with the uh, sutta on loving kindness. But, but just to say that the Buddha didn't really uh, focus on loving kindness for self. There's uh, very little reference to something like that in the suttas, and, and what we infer from that is that it wasn't really a problem. So many of the things that we see in the suttas in terms of the description of the human condition are quite relevant, as I said earlier, to our contemporary lives. But that's something that seems to be different. And, and in, indeed, even contemporary Asian teachers have been confused somewhat by the Western tendency of so-called self-hatred. Uh, so I wanted to look uh, in this book, uh, first at this question of love towards ourselves. And I chose uh, a very short sutta uh, in which there are two characters who show up in quite a few suttas and uh, who I kind of am curious about. Um, they're King Pasanadi and Queen, Queen Malika. Queen Malika. Uh, according to Bhikkhu Bodhi, she was a um, a flower girl, just a poor uh, f- girl who sold flowers on the streets of Kosala, where King Pasnati was ruled. And supposedly one day he was passing her by in his uh, royal chariot or carriage and, and uh, saw her and was just struck by her not physical beauty, but her radiant spiritual beauty. And, uh, and eventually made him one of his queens, apparently. Apparently had a few. We don't hear about the others. <laughs> They're not particularly relevant to the teachings. But uh, they, King Pasanadi and Queen Malika knew the Buddha and uh, interacted with him. And one of the interesting things about the Buddha is that he, he did have relationships with many of the rulers of North India at the time uh, when he was teaching. And, of course, he came from a sort of royal family, uh, from a, the, a um, warrior caste. So uh, Stephen Batchelor says that it was very natural for the Buddha to be able to interact with these people. And that was one of the things that kind of gave him a, an inside track on kind of uh, connecting with these leaders. In any case, uh, in this very short sutta, King Pasnati says to Queen Malika, is there anyone in the world that you hold more dear than yourself? And, you know, reading that in our culture, if my wife were to say to me, is there anyone that you hold more dear than yourself? It would be almost an insulting question, like as though like I was so narcissistic that I just loved myself most of all. But in this culture, clearly that was it was not viewed in that way because Queen Malika immediately says, "No, there's no one that I hold more dear to my, than myself." And what about you, King Pasanati? And King Pasanati says. No, there's no one that I hold more dear than myself. And then they go to the Buddha and tell him about this exchange. 
And he says, that's very good that you feel that way, that you see that. And then he adds that anyone who holds themselves dear will never harm another. Which is interesting that that's where he takes it, right? That he takes it into compassion. But he's also, it's also a kind of Buddhist version of the golden rule. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You know, you won't, if you care for yourself, because you know that everyone holds themselves dear, you won't harm them either. It's a very simple teaching. But what it brings up, I think, for me, is what does it mean to hold myself dear? Does it mean some kind of narcissism that I think I'm the most special person in the world? And I don't think that's at all what it means. You know, we have this idea in our culture that in, in order to be loved, we have to earn it. You know, we have to be a good person. We have to do special things. We have to qualify for it. Uh, and that's not at all what this seems to be about. I think it's very much simpler than that. And the way I've come to understand this, and this is, I have to say, completely my own interpretation, but just as I've thought about it, what I, think, I think it's very more basic than that, that it's about the, what they mean by holding ourselves dear is that I take care of myself, that I don't harm myself, that when I'm hungry, I feed myself. When I'm thirsty, I drink. When I'm sad, I seek out something to raise my spirits. When I feel spiritually bereft, I come to common ground to get some teachings. That I don't, even if I think that I'm a jerk, I'll still have lunch. You know, because my body wants it. I care for my, I take care of myself. Now, and that I think that's what they mean by loving yourself, holding yourself dear, is that we, we take care of ourselves. Um, and, and so I don't have to earn that. You know, I don't have to be a special person. Uh, and so that would mean that if I don't love myself, I don't take care of myself. And as a recovering addict, that kind of resonates for me, too. You know, even when I was getting loaded on a regular basis and not taking care of myself, there might have been times when I thought highly of myself, but I wasn't really love, being loving to myself. You know, I was harming myself. So for me, that gives me a way in to think about how I view myself. That, you know, I actually, I take pretty good care of myself. I eat pretty well. I, you know, I rest. I do things that I enjoy. Um, And I don't think I'm a particularly special person. You know, if I had to earn love or earn lunch, you know, earn, well, I'm not going to sleep until I do something nice. You know, I, I, wouldn't, I don't know if I'd get there. I don't know if I'd ever sleep, you know. Um, and, you know, when I said one of the things, the goals of this for me, this teaching, is to make it easier for people this is, to do this practice or sort of see it in a different way. This is one of the things that I'm trying to do. Like, you know, you come in here and the teacher says, okay, start to... Send loving kindness to yourself. And you're like, uh, 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 I don't know. But you know, I don't know if I really deserve it, right? Isn't that like a, I know that's a common thing. I hear that from people a lot, that they struggle. Oh, well, when the teacher says to love yourself, I'm like, I don't really love myself. It's, it's okay. You know, it doesn't mean you have to rate yourself or score or, or even like yourself. Uh-huh. 
Love is different from liking. I mean, so we'll look at the sutta later, but the, right in the heart of the Metta Sutta, the Buddha says, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with the boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. So we take that to mean you should love everyone the way a mother loves a child. But it actually doesn't say that. It says you should love everyone the way a mother protects a child. Now, as a parent, I'm not a mother, I'm a father. I know that children can be really annoying. And there are times when I'm really frustrated and angry with my daughter. But I still take care of her, no matter what. Right? I still make breakfast for her. I still you know, provide for her, because I love her. Don't always like her, but I love her. Right? So I think there's a really important distinction to make as we do this practice, that we don't have to, you know, be huggy, huggy, kissy, kissy, you know, to love ourselves or to love others. It's something more basic than that. Everyone deserves care. We are living beings who suffer. We understand that. And and we deserve to be cared for. You know, this even has, if you will, Political implications, right? And not that I, not particularly one I want to focus on, but you know, it, this idea that everyone deserves care. You know. So that question then of what is love also opens up the question of what is loving kindness. So uh, I, I'm already kind of. Ex- talked about that, but I'd like to just look a little bit. This is another thing that I find intriguing. You know, the, the texts that we have, those teachings from the Buddha, are in the Pali language, P-A-L-I. It's a dead language, so nobody speaks it anymore. Maybe some Pali scholars try to speak it, but it's not spoken. It's a, it's a very technical language. And it's difficult to translate because nobody speaks it. Right? It's a dead language. So the word we have that we translate into English as loving kindness is metta, M-E-T-T-A, a five-letter word. And it takes us two words, a compound in English, to say that word. It's loving. Okay, that's not enough. Isn't lo- shouldn't love express this? Why do we have to add kindness to the word love? Well, it's because in the English language, love can have a lot of different meanings. Sometimes it means sex. You know, sometimes it means desire or greed. You know, I love that car, man. You know, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with being kind. So the fact that we have to create this compound, this awkward compound, loving kindness, means that we have no translation for this word. We, ha- we don't really know what the Buddha meant. You know, we're trying to figure it out. We have these scholars, that are, and they throw out different terms. You know, friendliness, that doesn't sound very exciting. Uh, uh, beneficence, uh, whatever that is. You know, so uh, we run into this problem, this translation problem in Pali all the time, and there's a lot of terms. Dukkha, which we translate as suffering, which is completely inadequate translation. Anatta, not self. <laughs> what? You know, what are we talking about? Uh, because we don't even have these concepts in our language. So the way we come to understand them is through our practice and our reflection and through our lives. And eventually, metta just becomes metta. We don't use another word for it. Dukkha is just dukkha. We don't try to translate it. But part of this project that I embarked on is a quest- that is driven by that question as well. What does this mean? So the 
so I'll, I'll talk about, I want to talk about a couple more of the suttas and then, and then uh, maybe we'll take a break and then uh, get into the metta sutta together. Um, so the, as I said, the first sutta I, I explore is just this simple one uh, about self-love. The second one uh, is about um, living with people, getting along with other people. Seems like a natural place to move from okay, to self and now other. And it's a, it's a sutta in which, again, there are characters uh, and there's a backstory. <laughs> And the Buddha comes to visit these three monks who are living in the forest and they're meditating together. And he goes through a long conversation with the leader of those monks, Anuruddha, who was actually a cousin of the Buddha and one of the real master meditators. And the first half of the sutta is just about how they get along. And the first thing the Buddha asks, which I've read the sutta many times before I stopped and just questioned this line, first thing he asks the monks is, are you getting alms food? Are you eating? You know, this has been preserved for 2,600 years. Like, why didn't they just leave that out? Why is that an important thing to leave in a sutta that the Buddha says, are you getting alms food? Well, if they're not getting fed, then they're not going to be able to do anything else. And, you know, the Buddha says the worst form of suffering is hunger. So, and it shows that he's concerned not just about the spiritual condition of his monks, but their physical condition. Are you okay? Before we get into how your practice is going, are you getting fed? This is like as a mother protects her child, right? Have you eaten? Did you eat? Eat, eat. And then he asks them how they're getting along. And Anuruddha says, oh, we're getting along fine. And the Buddha says, well, ha- tell me more. You know, he doesn't just let him say, yeah, we're okay. He says, well, I practice loving kindness in three different ways. Well, actually, six different ways. Practices it mentally, verbally, and bodily. Now, why does he talk about those three ways of loving kindness? And the reason I say six different ways is because he says, I practice it publicly and privately. So I, you know, I say th- kind things and I think kind things. The, these three f- ways of practicing loving kindness are the three ways that we create karma. This is one of those things when you learn, to, when you start to read the suttas and you're oh, okay, that, it's not code exactly, but it's not just random that he mentions that it's you know, mentally, verbally, and physically that he practices loving kindness. The three ways that we create karma are by thinking. You know, and so what does karma mean? <laughs> Just to be a little more clear. What it means is that it's... An, a, a karma means cause and effect. So my thoughts are a cause that have an effect. Have you ever noticed that your thoughts have an effect? Like when I think, what an idiot, I feel that. <laughs> I love them. Oh, I feel that. So the, the immediate effect of thoughts is, we could say, emotional. But it also then typically leads to words. I think something, I say it. I say something, I do it. So they're all interrelated. There, and there are effects from each of them cause and effect. So this is why we have to watch our thoughts in meditation. It's very important because thoughts are actually the root of actions and the root of karma. So if if we don't pay attention to our thoughts, we're going around creating oftentimes negative results, negative karma in the world. So he he sends loving kindness in these three, three ways or six ways. I want to Pull out the sutta. I think I have it here. So I can read some of the specifics. It's, it's, uh, sorry. 
Well, the line that I love, the Buddha says, are you living in concord with mutual appreciation without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes? So one of the things that we see in the suttas is there's a lot of kind of redundancy. And they had more time in those days, so they didn't, they didn't have to rush through things, you know. We didn't just say, how are you? Good. Okay, let's go. He says, are you living in concord with mutual appreciation without disputing, blending like milk and water, this kind of image, uh, viewing each other with kindly eyes. Very sweet image, viewing each other with kindly eyes. Anuruddha repeats the phrase, those same phrases back, yes, we are doing these, all these things. And the Buddha asks, how are you doing that? And uh, So... Uh, Anuruddha says a bunch of things. He says, uh, when the Buddha says, how do you live like this without disputing? Anuruddha says, I think it is a gain for me, a great gain for me that I am living with such companions in the holy life. So gratitude, right? He's just appreciating them. So the reason I'm talking about this is that if you don't live alone or if you haven't lived alone your entire life, You've lived with other people. And those relationships, family, partner, close friends, roommates, can often get fraught. And this sutta kind of points towards how to keep those relationships harmonious. It is a gain for me that I am living with such companions in the holy life. So when you think about your dear ones. You know, again, with children or partners, you know, their family, parents, you know, we can get into a lot of agitations, you know, to just come back, remind myself, wow, it's, it's really a gain for me that these people are part of my life. It's really a benefit. Can I remember to appreciate them? And then he goes through this, I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness, openly and privately, verbal acts, mental acts. And then he says, I consider, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? Then I set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do. We are different in body, but one in mind. I love that line. We are different in body, but one in mind. This is a foundation principle of compassion. And look around this room. We're all different in body. But if we understand human, the human mind, we are one in mind. We all go through the same struggles and experiences in life, just in you know, our own shadings of them. Why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? Well, when I first read this suit, my daughter was a toddler, and I thought, well, this is my life right now. Taking care of a child is all the time, setting aside what I wish to do and do what this venerable one needs me to do to take care of her. But, it, you know, again, it's a beautiful statement of generosity and, and a challenge. I mean, most of the time, I want to do what I want to do, you know. I want, want to do what you want to do. Um, but uh, to be able to let that go, we can see how freeing that is and what an act of generosity it is. So gratitude and generosity, loving kindness. And then, then we come to a passage which, again, has been preserved for 2,600 years. And uh, the, the Buddha asks more, like, how do you abide diligent, ardent, and resolute? And says, Venerable sir, now he addresses the Buddha, as to that, whichever of us returns first from the village with alms food, prepares the seat, sets out the water for drinking and for washing, and puts the refuse bucket in its place. The refuse bucket. Okay, we're learning about garbage and toilets. Um, whichever of us returns last, eats any food left over, if he wishes, Otherwise, he throws it away where there is no greenery or drops it into water where there is no life. 
He puts away the seats and the water for drinking and for washing, puts away the refuse bucket ever washing it and sweeps out the refectory. Whoever notices that the pots of water for drinking, washing of the latrine are lower, empty takes care of them. You know, it's like, how do you take, tell me about how you keep your house clean. Oh, that's a really interesting story. Great, you do the dishes, what, you take the garbage out? Well, really fascinating. You know, why are we learning all this? Well, first of all, we're seeing about how these people cooperate, you know, how, they, how they live in harmony. Because they're actually living in silence. They're doing this, all this practice in silence. I think it's telling that it says we throw away what we don't eat where there's no greenery, drop it into water where there's no life. So there's a real sensitivity to the environment. These guys are living in the forest. There's only three of them. Kind of like, oh, well, toss it over there. We'll just make a garbage dump over there. No, they're very careful. Right? Not to harm anything in the environment. Um, good teaching for us. But it turns out that there's a particular reason why the Buddha was asking these questions. Not long before, uh, he had gotten news that some of his monks were not blending like milk and water. Uh, there, were, there was a group of monks living together, a much larger group, and and they were living in a place called uh, Kosimba. And there were two senior monks, each of whom had his followers. One of them was a, an expert in the monastic rules, all the precepts. And the other one was a meditation master. Now one day the meditation master went to the latrine and as those times, and apparently today as well, I've never been to India, but I understand that water was used for the purpose that we use toilet paper today, if you're with me on that. So the meditation master is in the latrine, uses the water for its purpose, leaves the latrine, and the, it happens that the rule master was coming into the latrine right after him goes in, he notices that the bucket has not been refilled in the latrine. Well, it turns out there was a rule about the bucket in the latrine. You do not leave it half empty. If you use it, then you go refill it. So after he does his business in the latrine and refills the bucket, he comes out and talks to the meditation master. He says, did you not know that there is a rule about filling the bucket in the latrine once you've used it? The meditation master says, no, I did not know there was that rule. So the rule master says, well, in that case, because you did not know, it is not a violation. So, and the master says, well, thank you. The meditation master says, thank you for that. In the future, I will remember to uh, refill it. They part amicably. However, the rule master goes back to his group of monks and mentions to them this encounter. Tells them that the meditation master had uh, you know, not followed the rules, apparently not knowing the rules. However, the, his followers missed the subtlety of the point, went to the followers of the other teacher and said, your teacher broke the rules. Yeah. And they are shocked. They go to the meditation master and say, the followers of the rule master say that you broke the rules that you, that by what you did in the latrine. The meditation master says, he told me that I didn't break a rule because I didn't know the rules. So that's, I don't know why they're saying that. So his followers go back to the followers of the other teacher and say, your teacher's a liar. <laughs> and so now they start arguing. And so now they're back and forth, and they're going at each other and arguing. Word gets to the Buddha that this is going on with some of his monks. And he travels to Kasimba and uh, comes into their a monastery or setting where they're practicing, uh, calls them together and says, what is going on? Well, that guy lied. No, you guys broke the rules. No, do, do. He says, hold, ho, 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 ho. You know, you need to let this go. You know, we need to live and blend like milk and water. We need to get along. Shockingly, the monk said, 
butt out. We've got this. We don't need your guidance on this. We're th- we'll take care of it ourselves. And Buddha's like, okay, shine on then. And as in Pali, it's, it's, it's not an exact translation. But, uh, and the, the Buddha left. And so we can see why the next time he encounters a group of monks, he would say, how are you guys getting along? <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, we work together. We keep the place together clean. You know, we do the cleaning together, no quarreling. Uh, you know, it's so striking. I mean, as contemporary, you know, we think of the Buddha and his monks as these lofty personages, you know, but, to imagine, but there they are, just acting like any old dopes, you know, behaving like, Spoiled children. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, uh, we see at times the Buddha later in his career talking about the frustration of dealing with this wide array of followers. Because when he started out, he just had these devotees, people who really were devoted to practice and committed practitioners. But after a while, he became like the hotshot, you know, rock star guru that everybody wanted to be with. But they, they kind of wanted to do it to be cool, maybe, you know. But, Maybe they didn't really want to do the work, right? Or they didn't get the, me- the full message on it. Uh, it was like, just go with him and you'll get enlightened. Great, like, let's go, party. Well, not quite. But, uh, you know, but, but again, it kind of makes this, you know, we, we see that this isn't really that different from our own lives, you know, that these challenges, uh, you know, who hasn't had some kind of a struggle with their, Roommates, or with their kids, or with their parents, and over the, you know, arguing over you didn't change the toilet paper, you didn't put the, you know, you didn't take the garbage out, and you left dirty dishes in the sink, right? So uh, this is all part of our practice. It's not that you just get to come to common ground and bliss out. You know, when you go home, you're also practicing. You're all those relationships are part of practice and. And, you know, it's much easier to sit in this room and meditate and feel love for everybody than it is to go home and see your roommate who just drank your orange juice. Like, dude, what's up? Like, so uh, this, is where, this is why I have this term, living kindness, rather than loving kindness. It's like, okay, this is, this, this is the challenge, right? So I don't... Do I want to go? There's one more sutta I'd like to talk about. I think we have time for this, yeah. Um, question, do, are people wanting a break yet? Are you, shall I keep going for a little while? Okay. Okay, we'll, we'll go through the simile of the saw. And this is really the, just an amazing sutta and one that I've worked with for years and, and struggled with. Uh, but it's also... Uh, filled with stories, and uh, as you can tell, I find a certain humor <laughs> in the stories, you know, uh, because you know they are so sort of distant at times from our reality that it's sort of hard to uh, kind of imagine imagine being in these situations. So uh, it, the simile of the saw has several different stories. It starts out with the, I think I might have some of it here, maybe not. It starts out with um, a monk coming to the Buddha, and and in in the suttas it says a certain monk came to the Buddha and told him that another monk named Molia Faguna was. Uh, spending too much time with the nuns, called the bhikkhunis, associating over much is the term they use, associating over much with the bhikkhunis. So the bhikkhu is monk in Pali, and bhikkhuni is, is nun. So first of all, when you read these carefully, you recognize that so it's naming Molia Faguna, the ones who's associating over much with the nuns. It's not naming the monk who ratted him out, right? This monk came to the Buddha and said, Molia Faguna is messing with the nuns. They don't record his name for posterity. And clearly, they're protecting his identity. 
He's like a witness in the witness protection. Whoever, a certain monk. You know, I just find it just interesting that they do that, that there's this, that's clearly intentional because many people get named in the suttas. But when somebody is called a certain monk, it's clear that they don't want to name that monk. Yeah. So uh, Molya Faguna is associating over much with the bhikkhunis. And the, he, so the Buddha says, bring Molya to me. Oh, that, he called him Faguna, which I love. I mean, Faguna, what a name. It's like some kind of an Italian swear word or something. Faguna, eh? You know. All right. So, I don't know. This is where I find humor. You know, I, I don't know. I was searching high and low for humor in the suttas. It's not really in there, but I just pull it out for myself. I mean, I just, you know, I was working with this for a long time, writing that name. I was like, this is a really weird name. Anyway, so. But, you know, he probably would think Kevin Griffin was a weird name. So there weren't a lot of Kevin Griffins in ancient India, so, as far as I know. I don't know where my people come from, but not probably there. So the, the Buddha calls him and says, Molya Faguna, I understand you're associating over much with the bhikkhunis. And to his credit, Molya Faguna says, yeah, it's true, which is, is very important. You know, the, this is, the Buddha is very forgiving, but if you don't admit your mistakes, you're in trouble. You know, you, you got, if you admit them, okay, there's possibility of redemption. If you don't, then that's uh, not good. And the Buddha, but the Buddha uh, says, you know, no matter what, you, because what happens is that Moli Faguna gets angry with people who are being mean to the nuns or saying mean things about them. And, and the nuns are doing the same with him. Like they're defending him or arguing with people who say uh, insults about Molya Faguna. And the Buddha says, no matter what, even if people are throwing clods or something, rocks at the nuns, even if they're attacking them, you must not let a mind, a thought of ill will arise in the mind. So this is the, you know, the, the theme of the sutta. The theme of the sutta is practicing non-ill will. And, and the absolute importance and requirement that the Buddha puts on this. You know, he says that anger is just the most destructive thing, that you mustn't let your mind get captured by anger. And you know, when I first read that, I thought, well, that doesn't seem right. I mean, if, if people are attacking the nuns, shouldn't he do anything? And, I, and part of my work on this book was to, was to dialogue with some of the uh, translators and, and other monastics uh, to, to try to get their take on this. And what was pointed out to me was that the Buddha doesn't say don't do anything. He doesn't say don't protect them. He says don't allow your mind to become filled with anger and hatred. So it's the mental part, right, that he's concerned about. He's not, not saying you shouldn't, you know, stop people from doing that, but you have to do it with a somehow maintain loving kindness or care, you know, even as a mother protects her child. So, um, so that's kind of the first anecdote. And then we go through it a, a couple more. And, and the second one is even more odd in a way. Well, maybe the first one isn't that odd. The second one, he, he says there was, there was a maid named Kali. Uh, and her mistress, Vedahika, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, Vedahika was known to be this kind and gentle person in the neighborhood. But Kali suspected that underneath that kind exterior, she was really not very nice. So Kali sets out to reveal this, to uncover her, what we'd call underlying tendencies, the Buddha talks about, underlying tendency of aversion. And she starts getting up later and later each day. 
And Vedahika starts getting more and more angry. Uh, see if I, I think I might have this one. Do I? No. I, hang on one second, because I've got some more suttas in here. I, I don't travel with the entire Majjhima Nikaya because it's huge. And actually, there's probably a copy of it in the in somewhere here, but uh, let me see. It's got to be in here somewhere, right? Maybe. Um, I just the the phrasing of this is so great. But, uh, I don't think it's in that one. I don't want to spend the afternoon going through my notes. I'll look one more time here. All right. I think we have it. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Says, so day after day she gets up later and later. And so finally, uh, the, um, Kali got up still later in the day. Then Mistress Vedahika said, Hey, Kali. <laughs> What is it, madam? What is the matter with you? You get up later in the day. Nothing is the matter, madam. Nothing is the matter, you wicked girl. Yet you get up still later in the day. And she was angry and displeased. And she took a rolling pin, gave her a blow on the head, and cut her head. I just, this image, it sounds like something out of a, a sitcom. It's like Roseanne with a rolling pin. Then the maid collie with blood running from her cut head denounced her mistress to the neighbors. See, ladies, the kind ladies work, the gentle ladies work. How can she become angry and displeased with her only maid for just getting up late? How she take a rolling pin, give her a blow on the head? And later, a bad report went out about Mistress Vedahika. She is rough, violent, merciless. So, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's the translator of this, he, he has, uh, gave a, a class on this uh, collection, on the Majjhima Nikaya. And when he talked about this, one of the things he said about the sutta, he said, I don't know, Kali, you know, this is supposed to be an example of this woman having these underlying tendencies, Vedahika, but I'm not sure it's really okay that Kali kept getting up later and later and kind of provoked her. You know, but it's, again, one of these things that's kind of just in the sutta and we're not, there's no real commentary on it. But it is questionable, the, the maid's behavior. Nonetheless, the Buddha uses this then as a jumping off point to talk about what he says we should be easy to admonish. He says, and he talks about monks, he says, some bhikkhu is kind, gentle, peaceful, so long as disagreeable courses of speech do not touch him. So as long as nobody says anything unpleasant to him, he's fine. And, but, uh, or, or he does it so that he could get his food and his robes so that he'll, and he'll get a medicine and a place to live. But if he doesn't get all that, then he becomes frustrated. And he says, um, but when a bhikkhu, he says, uh, a bhikkhu that is not easy to admonish and uh, you know when he, if he doesn't get everything that he wants, um, so it, this again talking about how reactive we can be, and watching you know how we can be nice as long as everything's going our way, but if things aren't going our way, we turn, and so. It shows that we're not really nice, right? It's just like we're only nice when things go our way. And, and obviously, you know, the challenge is to, is to maintain loving kindness even when in challenging circumstances. So this is where the Buddha then goes into this series of images depicting how deep our, the quality of loving kindness should be. And he gives a couple of sort of odd images. He says, uh, well, uh, let me go back just a little bit. He says, um, 
we sh you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no evil words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare, for people who speak you know, unkindly to us, with a mind of loving kindness, without inner hate. We shall abide pervading that person with a mind imbued with loving kindness. And starting with him, we shall abide uh, pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. So that's the framework. This is how we should uh, respond to people. So then he says this as, a, as an example. Suppose a man came with a hoe and a basket and said, I shall make this great earth to be without earth. He would dig here and there, strew the soil here and there, spit here and there, and urinate here and there, saying, be without earth, be without earth. What do you think, Bikus? Could that man make this great earth be without earth? No, venerable sir. Why is that? Because this great earth is deep and immense. It cannot possibly be made to be without earth. Eventually, the man would reap only weariness and disappointment. So, too, once you should train thus, our minds will remain unaffected, imbued with loving kindness. So, he's saying, your loving kindness should be like the earth. It should be so deep and so solid that no one could ever dig it up. You know, no one could just take a shovel or a hoe and get, get rid of your loving kindness. It's, it's massive. It's, it's like the earth. So we have this meditation sitting like a mountain. I, that's what I, the image that I kind of think of or the practice that I think of. And he uses another image, another odd one. Suppose a man came with crimson, turmeric, indigo, and carmine and said, I shall draw pictures and make pictures appear on empty space. It's like I'm going to paint the sky. That might be a lyric from a song. What do you think, Bikus? Could that man draw pictures and make pictures appear on empty space? No, venerable sir. This is actually a call and response, but you'll get it. Why is that? Because empty space is formless and invisible. He could not possibly draw pictures there or make pictures appear there. Eventually, the man would reap only weariness and disappointment. So our, just like space, our mind should remain unaffected. So this is another meditation practice that we do, kind of meditating with a, open, a big mind, we call it, right? Your mind is just big and spacious. So if some disturbance comes in, there's plenty of room for it. It just, nothing can you know, uh, upset you. So, let me get to the last part. Oh, okay, so one more image. Uh, it says, suppose a man came with a blazing grass torch and said, I shall heat up and burn away the river Ganges with this blazing torch. What do you think, Bikus? Could the man heat up and burn away the river Ganges with that blazing grass torch? No, no venerable sir. Thank you. Why is that? Because the river Ganges is deep and immense. It cannot possibly be heated up and burned away with the blazing grass torch. Eventually the man would reap only weariness and disappointment. So another. So we get, and, and typically of the Buddha, these are all natural images. Earth, air, water, fire. You know, the, a, medit, you know, a, a heart like a river. You're flowing. So finally, we get to the, the last image here, and this is the one that gives the title to the sutta. He says, Bhikkhus, even if bandits were to sever you savagely, limb by limb, with a two-handled saw, he who gave rise to a mind of hate toward them would not be carrying out my teachings. What? Here, bhikkhus, you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no evil words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare. The mind of loving kindness without inner hate. We shall abide pervading them with a mind imbued with loving kindness. And starting with them, we shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That is how you should train. Thus. 
So this is just this crazy image. You know, can you imagine somebody sawing off your limbs and all you do is radiate loving kindness to them? I mean, it's setting the bar rather high, I would say. <laughs> now, I have a couple questions about this. If the Buddha were here, I would ask him, why are these bandits sawing off my limbs? <laughs> I've given them all my money. I've given them my clothes. They've got everything I own. Are they going to sell my limbs to medical science? You know, what is the purpose of sawing off my limbs? That's where the, uh, the uh, image falls a little short in terms of resonating, you know, personally. Uh, but there have been, you know, stories, uh, spiritual history, in human history of people uh, being tortured, you know, and, and maintaining this quality of loving kindness. I don't think many of us could do it. But it really just speaks to how uh, important this is to the Buddha, that just no matter what, you know, somebody's gouging your eyes out, you know, you shouldn't allow a thought of ill will. And of course, you know, you read this, and I imagine <laughs> we all respond by thinking, well, I can't I can't do that. I couldn't possibly do that. And I think it's really important to um, recognize that, you know, that you know, when we engage in this practice, we all have our level of commitment. You know, some of us are willing to come to a class once a week. Some of us are willing to go on a day long or a week long or a month long or some of us ordain, you know, we all have different levels of commitment and, uh, you know, we don't have to sort of measure ourselves against that. But I think it's also good to know what the Buddha actually said. Say, okay, yeah, I'm not there. Maybe I could say I'm not there yet. I don't know that I'll ever get there. If there is such a thing as reincarnation, maybe someday I'll get there. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. Certainly, um, again, uh, you know, talking to Ajahn Pasano, who was one of my advisors on this project, you know, his his take was very simple. He said, you know, I think this is just meant to, you know, send... It's, it's an image, it's a, me- it's a message. It's not m- really meant to be taken literally that, uh, you know, you could do this. Uh, and, he, and, and his, kind of, his point was more that, you know, we're probably not going to get into this situation, but it just lets us know that, you know, we really, this is where we should be aiming towards not reacting to people if they cut us off on the freeway or they steal our money or they, uh, you know, if they're rude to us or uh, all the kind of, you know, they fire us from our job or all the kind of problems we have in life that, that um, it's really not worth allowing anger and resentment to take us over. So there's a, a, something in the Vasudhimaga where the, I would mention the loving kindness practice, the formal practice comes from, where it, it says seven things that your enemy wishes. <laughs> and, and so the Buddha says that when you uh, are angry towards your enemy, that you give them these, these things. Your, ang- your enemy wishes you to be ugly, to lie in pain, to be in pain, to have no good fortune, to not be wealthy, to not be famous, to have no friends, and to end up in hell. <laughs> so I, I don't know about all of these. We don't know, you know, maybe you could be angry and still become wealthy or famous. In fact, I can think of one famous person who seems to be angry all the time. But, you know, that the, I like this idea that, you know, it makes you ugly and it causes you pain. It's painful to be angry, right? This is one of those classic teachings where the Buddha says it's like picking up a hot coal. Being angry with someone is like picking up a hot coal to throw it at your enemy and who gets burned. 
There's another part of that uh, sutta that teachers usually leave out, but I like the gruesome stuff. He says it's like picking up excrement and throwing it at someone, and you wind up smelly, you know, a stink, the stink of anger. But, you know, if you're walking around angry all the time, yeah, you're probably not going to have a lot of friends. And you're already in hell. You know, you're... So that's, this is another way to approach the problem of how to not be angry, right? Because this is like the pro, I see it as like the challenge. How do I do this? Well, one of the ways is to reflect on what you are doing to yourself that you're actually giving to your, uh, to your so-called enemy. Here's another one, and this is from the suttas. The Buddha says, Your enemy hurt you, in quote, his domain. Not sure what that means exactly, but he says, why hurt yourself in your own domain of the mind? Interesting, right? They hurt you, and now you're hurting yourself by being angry. He says, then he says, he's talking to monks. He says, you know, when you left your family, they were tearful, they were sad. Why, if you can do that, why don't you leave the anger? that hurts you. He says, anger gnaws at the roots of virtue. Oh, God, that's kind of crazy. Someone else does ignoble deeds. You then copy them by being angry. Uh, That's a good one, right? Your enemy wants you to react. Why you give them what they want? Your anger might or might not hurt your enemy, but it definitely hurts you. And finally, emotions are so brief and the actions that hurt you are over. What is it you are angry with? So in other words, when you're angry, you're getting angry about something that's not happening, typically. It happened, it's over, impermanent. So the... um, you know, there's all these kind of uh, motivations and, re- you know, understanding. So there's several things going on here. First of all, we want to understand the effects of anger so that we're motivated not to do it and then develop ways to not be angry. So one of the ways the Buddha says, to, uh, the Buddha has these approaches to letting go of resentment. If you can find some quality in the person that you have a resentment for that you approve of, they have some good quality. So he's like, look for the positive, right? Is there something in their bodily behavior or their verbal behavior or their mental behavior? And he says, if you can't find any positive quality in that person, then have compassion for them because that person will end up in a hell realm, because if they don't, there's nothing good about them. I mean, hell realm, that's, you know, you can take that literally or just, you know, uh, depending upon your beliefs about hell realms. But uh, uh, so uh, it's interesting that he kind of like, well, can you find something positive about them? And and I think, you know, that's sort of a natural thing to do. Sometimes you go, oh, well, that person's really annoying, but, you know, he's really generous. Or we, you know, so we just kind of see, oh, there's, and, and to focus on that positive quality. But then that idea that if, if there's really nothing about them, then wow, they're really suffering. They're creating suffering for themselves. Why be angry with them for that? You know, can you have compassion for them? So you can see that a lot of what this work is about and a lot of what the Buddha talks about Rather than loving kindness, I mean, he certainly talks about that, but a lot of it, he's coming at it talking about non-ill will. He's basically saying, if you let go of your anger and ill will, loving kindness and compassion are there naturally. This is kind of one of the principles of meditation practice, right? That it's really, it's not about, oh, I need to build up more and more love or more and more mindfulness. You know, It's that I, if I let go of the things that get in the way of loving kindness. 
If I let go of the things that get in the way of awareness, if I let go of the hindrances, that what's there, that shining you know, light of, of humanness, of beingness, is loving, is kind, is awake, is aware. And, and of course, I, I find that motivating because I don't have to go out there and acquire all these good qualities. It's just letting go. Simpler, you know, unburdening yourself and seeing. So a lot of what the Buddha is teaching, when we see the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering and its cause and the, its end and the way to end it, a lot of what he's teaching is to become aware of how you create suffering. And when you see that clearly, you'll be naturally motivated to let go. Nobody has to tell you to drop a hot coal, you know. It's, your hand lets it go before your mind even has the thought. So this focus on mindfulness, one of the main reasons the Buddha teaches mindfulness as the core practice is that it shows you how you create suffering. You see how you create suffering. And that naturally results in your letting go of those causes. So let's take a break. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.